Welcome to the Apple of Truth, our bi-weekly podcast where we nerd out about our favorite TV shows. Currently, we are covering every single episode of Good Omens based on the book by Sir Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman. And because we are who we are, we focus on details you didn't need, but for sure deserved. I'm Vero. And I'm Lena. And today we're talking about Season 2, Chapter 3. I Know Where I'm Going, featuring the Minnesota, The Resurrectionists. And I Know Where I'm Going, of course, is one of the many films made by Powell and Pressburger. Seriously, it is absolutely fucking ridiculous how many references to that movie duo we get. In this episode, even more so than in the last two. I will read them all out. This is one of their later movies. That is a 1945 romance movie. Hmm, romance movie. I wonder why they chose that. Hmm. Yeah. So there's a link in my notes if you want to read up on it or you can just go on fucking Wikipedia and do the work yourself. Delightful. Yes. But speaking of doing the work yourself, I did the work. I wrote a summary. So let's see what I came up with. Aziraphale goes to Edinburgh, Crowley minds the bookshop, Heaven sends an angel to observe, the Vavoom plan nearly works, Jim gets another short Gabriel-slash-God moment, and our flashback this episode takes us back to Edinburgh, where Crowley did a good thing and apparently got punished for it. As you do when you're not with the good guys, technically. Yeah, we're gonna have to talk about that scene a lot, because I have opinions and I'm very upset with Aziraphale. First, you need to have a sip of tea, obviously, because we are about to talk about the most British word of the episode. I know, I know. And what is more British than tea? <laughs> what is more British than a cup of tea? <laughs> okay, um, I was about to take a sip of my tea and then it went down the wrong way. Did you go with cup or tea? I did not go with cup or tea. Wow, okay, that was... <laughs> that would be pretty amazing. No, I went slightly different road, but it's not that far off. Uh, my British word of the episode is toast. What? <laughs> so I knew that there is a certain history about why we say toast when we toast each other. But I figured... I'm going to look into it because I was never... I, I think the only way I heard of it was because they mentioned it on Big ba on the Big Bang Theory or something like that. Ew. And, I, you know, exactly for that reason, I was like, I'm, I'm going to do my own research. Or just, you know, look into it and see what it hides. So, the word toast in the sense... A person who is honored with a drink and wishes for a good health or prosperity with the accompanying verb to propose or drink to a person as a toast first appears in print at the very end of the 17th century. Which is kind of weird because this is coming from the same article that's going to disprove that in a second. Okay, curious. So the conventional assumption is that the use is metaphorical. Obviously, the name of a lady being supposed to flavor a bumper like a spiced toast in the drink, as it is expressed in the Oxford English Dictionary in the first edition. So basically, a lady wanted a spiced toast in her drink. And that's where this is coming from, essentially. Really? It, it does come from the bread? It does come from the bread, but I am shooketh. This is a pure speculation. The way this is described 
is pure speculation. It is written by Joseph Addison in 1701, and this is going to be a long quote, so bear with my accent. To know what a toast is in the country gives as much perplexity as she herself down in town. And indeed, the learn differ very much upon the original of this world. So, uh, in translation, we don't actually know where it's coming from. There are different opinions to this. <laughs> And the acceptation of it among the moderns. But many of the wits of the last age will assert that the word in its present sense was known among them in their youth and had its rise from an accident in the town of Bath in the reign of King Charles II. It happened that on a public day a celebrated beauty of those times was in the cross bath and one of the crowd of her admirers took a glass of the water in which the fair one stood and drank her health to the company. There was in the place a gay fellow how fuddled, who offered to jump in and swore though he liked not the liquor, he would have the toast, alluding to a drink with toast dipped in it. So basically, this means that this dude grabbed a drink that has a toast dipped in it because he didn't want the pure alcohol. Wow. I know my accent is excellent. Also, obviously it's bath. Like, what other place in England could it have been except fucking Bath? Yes. Like, I'm not surprised. Yeah. So, basically, it is connected to the original meaning of toast. So, okay. toast as a crisp bread, charred bread, originally appeared around 14th century. And it comes from the combination of Old French toste, which means roast, and that is coming from Latin to torere, which means parch. So combination of, of like thereof came up with toast because English. I had not known that toast originally comes from Latin. I mean, I should not be surprised. Basically, everything fucking comes from Latin, but... Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, so it's a, it's a middle English, middle-aged English invention. Because a dude was drunk and there was bread and there was alcohol and a pretty lady. Of course. And it was in couldn't, love. Couldn't be a pretty guy. Must have been a pretty lady. At least it was a gay fellow. Whatever it meant back then. <laughs> back then it made uh, toujours gay, happy, everything. Okay, um, mine is not nearly as entertaining as yours. I had a lot of trouble picking a word. There was just nothing that jumped out at me. Well, I was tempted to do Tempest, but it's super, super boring. Though it's actually just a double thing because when it's being said, it's like there's a great Tempest and Storms and Tempest simply means storm. So it's like... Huh? So I looked into that, but no. Instead, I went with resurrectionists because obviously I know what a resurrection is because I grew up in a Christian country. But the resurrectionists obviously referred to not Christian people, but to people robbing graves. So I was like, hmm, there's a peculiar, so we're going to look into it. So what did I think it means? I thought, well, we're going to go very literal. Probably the people reviving dead people or the resec the resurrection. I can't say it. Resurrectionists. Are the resurrectionists. It actually is a euphemism from 1776 because it is <gasps> a euphemism used literally for grave robbers. Gasp. So 
it does not mean grave robber. It actually means to raise from the dead. But they are taking the dead from the graveyard without raising them. So, ha ha ha, euphemism. 1776, so not that far away from where we go back in the times. Mm-hmm. Where does it come from? It is very obviously taken from a resurrection, which is the rising again of Christ after his death and burial. Yes, according to my research, resurrection refers only to Christ. Interesting. It is from Anglo-French Résurrection, Old French Résurrection, this time with an N, the resurrection of Christ from the 12th century. And directly from Church Latin, resurrectionem, nominative resurrectio, arising again from the dead. The noun of action from past participle stems of Latin resurgere, rise again, appear again. Because search is to rise and research is rise again. So, yeah. It is all of all, it is all of this connected to the fucking resurrection of Christ, Christian stories and everything. So it is very, very fitting that you have on one side the euphemism with the Mr. Not Doctor of the grave robbers. And on the other side, you have freaking Jesus who rose from the dead after he was actually resurrected. To wrap up this part, there's nothing else to say except listen to the bonus and we go into the facts and funds. So remember the writer confusion from last episode where I pointed out that we had a second writer but didn't really make sense. Well, a lovely person from one of my Discord servers explained this to me. The Minnesotes are written by other people. And he gave me a non-spoilery page where I could look it up. And so every Minnesota is written by another person. That's amazing. And that is why we had John in the last episode. And this time we have Cat Clark who wrote this Minnesota. And Cat was born in Zambia and brought up in Edinburgh and Yorkshire, which has given her an accent that tends to confuse people. Cat has written non-fiction books about exciting things like cowboys, sharks and pirates and now writes uh, YA novels. She lives in Edinburgh with a couple of cats, German Scout, who spend their days plotting to spit up furballs at the most inconvenient times. She likes cheese a lot, especially baked camembert. And also I want to note, did you know that there was a Minnesota that was published during COVID. I did not know there was a Minnesota published during COVID. And that Minnesota is written by Neil and it is a Minnesota that basically gives us insight how Aziraphale and Crowley dealt with the lockdown. It is a phone conversation between Michael Sheen and David Tennant as their respective characters. So basically stage but in character of Good Omens. Yes. Love that. And it is on YouTube so we will put the link in the notes so that you can watch it yourself and enjoy it because there is nothing spoilery about it. It is from years ago, obviously, so nothing bad to happen there. To move on to more facts and funs, the IMDb trivia section is a fucking mess. Somehow there are now tidbits in episode 3 that belong into episode 2. It took them until now to figure out that the license plate of the Bentley spells curtain backwards. Um... They have taken nothing from the actual Amazon trivia section. So it is a freaking mess. I will still keep checking it. But as of now, none of the three episodes have provided any kind of interesting insight. 
It's IMDb. It does not surprise me. Well, 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 we're not going to be harsh. There was a lot of great and interesting or entertaining stuff that we have taken in the past. But apparently when you watch current stuff, the hive mind does not work as well as it should probably. And so I kept all the Amazon tidbits in the respective scenes. There is a lot. So strap in or probably listen to the bonus where most of them are going to end up. All right, are we ready? I'm never ready, but hit me with the previously on. Uh, previously on Good Omens. <laughs> Maggie has a push for Nina, which doesn't seem to be reciprocated. Gabe <laughs> is now Jim. Crowley and Azrafel perform a magnificent miracle together. Azrafel then lied to heaven what it was about. Hell is getting real suspicious about the whole thing. And Jim is also Gape sometimes little more than other times. That is very accurate and you broke me a bit there. Thank you for that. But it is now time to go into the episode and we go upstairs and I did not know that the bookstop I did not know that the bookshop had an upstairs. I was like, I mean, "What? We have seen Jim go down the revolving rolly stairs multiple times yeah no that did not track in my brain i'm sorry see there's an apartment like he zerafel totally lives there so i mean when he's not yeah, in the zerafel but crowley not big no because they have the apartment together that's not there no no it is it is a thing i'm telling you it is a thing that's that's okay You shall eat your words in the in three episodes. Okay, you are on record. But way more importantly <laughs> is that Jim is up there and not only is he having his hot chocolate, his mug now says Jim's mug and the hot chocolate now says Jim's hot chocolate in golden letters and it is so adorable because Azurafel has he has had to be the one to get it for him. So the question is, did he get new ones for him? Or did he just write, he just gave him his mug and wrote Jim's mug on it? Hmm. Or did Jim just accidentally miracled or gave miracled Jim's mug on the... No, no. Yeah. This is something Zerafel did for Jim, I'm pretty sure. So Jim doesn't forget his name? Yes. Yeah. That is a nice side effect. Though I have to say I am very disappointed in the Zerafel because this is the cheap cocoa, the one you do with water and not the one you do with milk. Well, this is England we're talking about. They don't know what good cocoa is. Yeah, but still, I expected better of a Zerafel, enjoyer of all things human consumption. So I am disappointed. I expected better of him. Maybe we should gift Neil Gaiman or Michael Sheen the real cocoa. I hope that both of them have actually had real cocoa, but... <laughs> Maybe. Maybe we should. Also, Something to think about. While you have Jim drinking his cocoa and being really happy, he looks into the coffee shop. And for a second there, I thought he was going to upgrade from cocoa to coffee. That he was going to go over into the coffee shop and try that. <laughs> Because he looked so intrigued, you know? Yeah. Huh. But sadly, that does not happen. No, that doesn't happen, no. Did you notice in the street how many finely dressed people were in the street? No. So, for the first time in this season, I actually watched this episode twice. 
Ooh, oh no, they were going to be here until midnight. Because the <laughs> Amazon notes were like, oh, the notes that start with For Defense have spoilers for this episode, so you should not read them before you finish the episode. So I was like, okay, I guess I watch it once and then I go through it again and do the detail shit. Oh, how terrible. Yeah, they don't have spoilers for the chapter, so I, could, I did not have to do it. But, oh well, now I know. But... But that means I could pay attention to different things in both runs. Mm-hmm. So I realized that when Jim looks over to the coffee shop, you see the street, obviously, and all the people walking around there. And there are some really, really snappy dressed people there. So Muriel, later on, really should not have been as out of place as they are made out to be. So, yeah. I think it's most of the color, though. No, there is a dude in a white suit. Huh. Yeah. Exactly, <gasps> which is why I was like, Muriel should not have gotten the stairs that they got. Maybe it's a backup angel. <gasps> Maybe, yeah. Oh no. Maybe. Oh no. We learned so much. See, this is why you watch it multiple times. And this is all I have for the first 31 seconds of this episode. Great thing <laughs> we haven't talked about this for 10 well minutes. <laughs> done. You know what I realized? So we get Nina preparing coffee for a customer and her girls. The customer's name, did you did you see that in the notes? Because no. her name is Miss Sandwich. I love that. It's a bit rude, but also it's pretty funny. It's so funny. I also think that she is very much on the money when, when it oh, comes to Because yes. she clearly knows Nina well enough to have this sort of interaction with I her. I love Miss Sandwich. Miss Sandwich is amazing. Everything she says is true. But I also... I hope you're not going to hate me for this. I'm starting to vibe with Nina. That's okay. I'm not surprised. I'm enjoying Nina's grumpiness when Maggie's not around. I don't like them together, but when it's just Nina in the scene, I'm vibing. I mean, I'm not surprised because she is a fellow barista and you can relate to her on several levels. Mm. So I'm not surprised. I'm still not a fan of Nina, but... I'm not a fan of Maggie. Oh, same. Thank you. <laughs> No space for fan for those two. Mm. But I have a question for you. Who are the girls that Miss Sandwich is talking about that notice when Nina isn't happy and the coffee is less good? I was trying to figure it out just based on her outfit and stuff. And I was feeling like she's a yoga instructor and she's bringing it to her students. Okay. Wow. I went a completely different direction. I thought maybe she's a, a madam. I mean that that would be the obvious thing because that's how you like how I would expect her to talk about her girls, but like also it can't be her children because you wouldn't buy coffee for your children because you're not insane. And she's not old enough to have grown up children, I feel. Yeah. So yeah, in my brain I thought maybe she's a madam. Hmm. No, because she orders the oat milk. In the coffee and like plebs, normal people don't really... This is why I went to the yoga route. Because I was like, yoga people drink oat milk. I'm ins heavily insulting all of my oat milk drinkers. Also, I, I also drink oat milk <laughs> and I don't do yoga. But you could because you drink oat milk. Oh, okay. Yeah, I could because I drink oat milk, but I can't because I'm not flexible. Well, I'm not flexible. Great. I mean, you can start... You have to start somewhere. I mean, another potential idea would be her boobs, obviously. Wow. I don't know why her boobs would notice that the coffee is bad, but maybe they do. I mean, it's like some people say that they can tell whether by their boobs. So yeah. like if one boob hurts more than the other, it means it's going to rain. I wonder if we will ever... Uh, 
get to learn who eh. and what her girls are. I I like her though. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like we are team Miss Sandwich and her girls. Yeah, Miss Sandwich <laughs> and her girls. If if we named our episodes, this would be the name of the episode: Miss Sandwich and her girls. Yes. So Miss Sandwich, of course, keeps telling Nina truths, and one of the truths she tells her is that she should not look at this when Nina gets a message, and obviously she shouldn't have because it was obviously their partner. We still don't know all the way to the end of the episode if Lindsay is male or female, and they are making it. They are making sure that we don't know, and I like that. Yes, I'm very much here for it. It is deliberate, and I'm loving it. So yes, yes, yeah. And then of course we get my first laughing out loud moment in this episode, which is when a honk, like a car honks outside, and Miss Sandwich looks outside and she sees Muriel. And well, someone has a sense of humor or an interesting kink, and I'm like, <laughs> that's my kind of girl. Oh, this is why you decided that she's a madam. That she might be a madam, yeah. Because she talks about kinks. Yes. Unprompted, because it's like the same way you know someone is vegan, you know someone is kinky. They will tell you. Yeah. So Miss Sandwich wraps it up with that will put a smile on your face, and she turns around, she looks at Nina. Well, not on your face, and it's just she is sassy. She is serving. I'm. I. I love it. Um. She's great. She's my favorite new character next to Muriel. Yes, full agreement on that. So you are the music person. Did you clock the music in the background? No. The stringed version of Queen's Radio Gaga is playing in the background. The Queen tracks were specially arranged by Aos Council, who, as well as being a composer in her own right, was Benedict Cumberbatch's violin tutor for Sherlock. Ah, somebody tried to tutor him. So apparently, the music that we will get to hear in the coffee shop is where we get all the um. New versions of the Queen songs that I mentioned in episode one or two. So there you go. Yeah. All right. So now you may skip over to Muriel. Speaking of Muriel, <laughs> as we were a minute ago, she is walking. She's wearing a white uniform and white white a hat. white 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 uniform. It's wow. it literally looks like she was flipped out of a three D printer. <laughs> yes. Oh my god. And she is coming up to the bookshop, obviously. And <sighs> Zrafel is inside for I don't know how long he's been there because he's still listening to the same fucking song. I was so confused timing-wise, and I was like, "Is this before or after our car conversation?" After. Yeah, yeah I, I know, but in the beginning, I was like, "Maybe this is before this," and then for a while, I was like, "Oh, well, maybe did Zrafel and Crowley like switch bodies again?" <laughs> Oh, wow, that would be good, actually. Is this Crowley in disguise? Because he's so patronizing to her. And I was like, maybe this is Crowley trying to be a Xerophil? And then, of course, Crowley comes stomping in later and it's like, oh, okay, no. Uh, yeah, now everything makes sense. But I was so confused at the beginning. So, yep, yeah, whoops. Sorry. This is such a sweet interaction because he opens the door and she is so fucking clueless. But she is the embodiment of heavenly angel who thinks... They know everything on paper about humanity, but they actually do not understand a single thing. But she is not malicious like Gabriel and Michael. Yeah. She is actually... Oh, actually, so Muriel is they. They refer to Muriel only by they. So they do about uh, to Beelzebub, by the way. Exactly. So we should probably do this without misgendering Muriel. All right. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so... uh. 
Aziraphale opens the door. Aziraphale opens the door and then there's Muriel. And Muriel is the embodiment of heaven, of I know exactly everything there's to know about humanity. I read it in a book, but they don't have the practical knowledge. <laughs> and they don't have the maliciousness that Gabriel and Michael seem to have in their ignorance, because Gabriel is, I don't know and I don't care, before he lost his memory. And Michael is, I don't know and why would you even ask me that and Muriel on the other hand is always like trying to like yeah yeah this this makes sense and yes and I made an error so I this proves I'm human and it's they're so adorable they're so excited about humanity and happy to be there yeah excited and delighted that they were chosen for this task I'm sure did you notice that the box from episode one is still open in the middle of the room yes yes it is We'll get to that in a bit later. I'm gonna say this now before we go to the exact to the actual moment. You were right. I went back into episode one, and when Zirafel opens the box, there is a fly in there, and it is definitely a CGI fly. It's not an accidental fly. It is put there deliberately. So you are right. And shockingly enough, there's still a fly inside the bookshop. Exactly. We're gonna come to that later, but you were right. I specifically went back for you when I saw the box. I was like, wait, we talked about this. You were right. <sighs> Balm to my soul, balm. Yes, yes. Speaking of balm, Aziraphale offers a cup of tea to <laughs> Muriel. Tea. And their reaction is, once again, I keep saying adorable. I have no other words for them. It's so cute. It is really, really, really cute. But also... I, I literally wrote down, you know what? I love Muriel. F- fuck all the rest of the new characters. <laughs> I mean... Like, and like one of the first thing they say is... As a human police officer, I can unobtrusively monitor you without raising suspicion. Which in theory makes sense, but in the way they execute it, obviously it doesn't work. So, cup of tea in Muriel's hand. This, it's it's so good. One thing I noticed at this moment, Muriel is wearing like off-white or like a very creamy white, which is a very signif- very specific color for all the angels. While... Oh yeah, we talked about uh, that, yes. Zirafel, I feel like his clothes in the previous season were used to be much closer to that off-white. But when you see them sitting next to each other, the difference in the colors is so huge. And it feels like... Zirafel's outfit is even multiple colors, yeah, like different shades, even like it feels there's a little bit of green in it. There's not really any green in it, but like it is giving that vibe. So it just feels like this is his journey towards be- humanity. And individuality. And individuality. And it's it's just so cool that you can capture all of that in a piece of clothing. Both Zirafel's and Crowley's outfits are different than in season one. And they fit very well. And we're going to talk about that later when Crowley is mining the bookshop. So Muriel obviously does not know how to hold a cup of tea. Cup and of the tea. way they say it is absolutely adorable. And this is the moment Crowley comes in. And Crowley is bringing his plans because apparently they cannot stay in the back seat while Aziraphale takes his car at their car. Obviously, because basically Aziraphale told him to get the fuck out of his apartment. 
So he's bringing the only thing he cares about, which is his plans. Which is except a, for Israfel, obviously. It's so cute. It just means that he's moving in, basically, for the time being. I'm very curious if he's gonna move out after this. Like, I'm, I'm curious if he's just gonna stay. He will because they have an apartment to get us somewhere else. Oh God. Okay. So <laughs> I felt that the entire scene, Israfel, is kind but patronizing towards Muriel. And then Crowley enters and he is mean and patronizing towards Muriel. And the two of them sitting, like when Crowley sits on the side of the chair that Aziraphale sits in. Like, I'm sorry, this is prime couples energy. Absolutely. Like, this is l- lovers couples energy. Yeah, yeah. The same way the same way Crowley in the previous episode had the whole, here's your sherry and I have more whiskey kind of a, and what do we have here? Why are you bothering my husband energy? That that could have been very, very, very good friends. But him sitting literally on Aziraphale's shoulder, because he's sitting on the shoulder of the chair. And so his head is like on the shoulder. He is the devil on Aziraphale's shoulder. It is fucking brilliant. It is excellent. I am here for it. But... I- as I said in season one, Crowley is more in love with Aziraphale than Aziraphale is with Crowley. Still. I think that it's a very well-balanced relationship. I think that they love each other equally, but they love each other differently. Nope. The mood that I was getting from the interaction between Aziraphale and Muriel felt like a very granddad energy to me. <laughs> I didn't... I wasn't getting patronizing. I was getting kind and sweet and trying to be helpful, but not always in the best possible way. You see the better things in people than I do. <gasps> I mean, it was it was just very like, oh, no, of course you're doing this. Of course you are. Of course you're 200 years old. Yeah. And to me, this is patronizing. I think it would be patronizing if he didn't know that Muriel cannot cop that at all. Still. Okay, so the angel, our husbands leave Muriel behind for a moment because they need to speak in private. And as soon as Israfel points out, well, we can just tell you what we talked about afterwards. And Muriel is happy with that, at least for a short moment. So we go into the back room and we have a short conversation that basically just moves the plot along. It's like, okay. How did your lots manage to stay in charge for so long? I don't know. Did we? I don't think they did. No. Um, We also learned that Crowley is entertained by their measurement for miracles, because this is how you measure miracles, by how many people you could have risen from the dead. And we also learned that Crowley is obsessed with rom-coms, which we have kind of learned last episode, but he is holding on to it and he's going to see it through. So... Then when we have Muriel burst into the room to ask about what's going on, he very skillfully directs them to the correct miracle and he buys time. And that is so smoothly. Yes. Humans are weird and that's how it works. It's so well done. Yeah. So the... Crowley has to do the love thing and he's gonna stay there. He's gonna mind the bookshop while his friend takes the car to Edinburgh and he throws over the car keys so everything is settled. And Muriel has their job to now 
observe Nina and Maggie and she and they will do it in the next scene but before we get there I have to say this scene is my favorite scene that we have had so far in the new season it even the last moment when Crowley does the the up curled upper lip when Aziraphale leaves and he goes like the, I think Everything about this scene gave me joy, gave me feelings on the happy side. This is perfect. I loved every single, every fucking single second. This is what I wanted. This is what I'm getting. I am very happy. Because there's going to be complaining later on. So I just wanted to uh, <laughs> get my appreciation out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> It is quite convenient that Muriel is so clueless though. Yes. Yes. I mean, it helps. It makes sense, but it it does really help the the plot movement and then of course first thing Muriel does is goes to the coffee shop and asks Nina about her love life which makes sense which makes sense from Muriel's point of view but Nina's reaction literally again vibing with Nina hard absolutely perfect we cut over to the straight where Aziraphale is sitting in the car and I have a base question is it the same as I have no what is your question because I'm pretty sure I have an answer to your question why are there three bullet holes in the front did you not pay attention when we did three episodes on Good Omens the book Crowley only once has put fuel into the car And he did it in 1967 to get the free James Bond bullet in the window transfers, which he rather fancied at the time. Yes, but that's ages ago. Yeah. Okay. It's a direct quote from the book. And this is why they are in the Bentley, because he put them there and they're never gone. I don't think they were there in every single scene. They should be continuity wise. Maybe they fucked it up at some point. Okay, I'm blaming them for fucking it up because they're so bad at continuity. Lol. <laughs> this is a joke for legal reasons. No, like, this is uh, made explicit in the Amazon notes. But my question is very different. My question is, is Aziraphale actually driving the car or is he telling the car where to drive? I think he's telling the car where to drive. Right? Same way he later does with the phone. Yes. And he talks to the car the entire time. Exactly. Perfect. Okay, we are in agreement. He drives off, or the car drives off with him, and poor Crowley looks out of the window and sees his car and husband go, and I'm very sad for him. He is so unhappy. We go into the opening, and I know we said we're not talking about the opening, but I have started writing down things I notice, because from what I can tell so far, the opening is an entire retelling of the show, and in the very first few seconds, you see Gabriel carrying a box, for example, in the opening, and you see goats that are bursting into flames, like with Job. And you see the pickled herring barrel that we see this episode. I have also noticed that one. You are very right that the entire opening is one ginormous spoiler. <laughs> ah. So I will continue to watch it only as far as it seems to relate to the current episode. Smart move. Yeah, but I think I spoiled myself if it was deliberate what they put on something's there. But we shall see. We shall see. But now it is time to go into Edinburgh past 1827. But before we go into the actual scene, I'm gonna get the myriads of Amazon notes out of the way because there is a lot of them. This diary is dated 10th of November, which happens to be Neil Gaiman's birthday. We should note he wasn't born in 1827. I mean, if you didn't say that, I would be completely 
convinced that he was, so thank you, Amazon. Neil Gaiman wrote an earlier diary entry by Aziraphale, which we catch a small glimpse of. The full entry reads, Madam, I said, I do believe that you have entirely misunderstood me. The Countess drew herself to her full height, which I believe would have been about five feet and seven inches, and stared at me, quite puzzled. No, she said, I believe it is you who are mistaken, Mr. Fell, for I have never met a man of any kind who could resist my blandishments. And then, replacing her garments, which took much longer than shedding them, she added, I do not know what manner of man you are, Mr. Fell. I trust you will still help my brother with his little problem. I am still there for him, I assured her. He is as good as freed from his durance vile. You are an angel, said the Countess, and so we left the matter. This morning, her brother rejoined her, released by me, from Debtor's jail. She was by all accounts delighted to see him, post-scriptum. It appears that she was not a countess, he was not her brother, and they fled together for France, leaving many debts behind them. I told Crowley all about the matter over a glass of claret, but he did not appear to be as surprised as I had expected. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, their little adventures, I love them so much. The first magnificent shot of Edinburgh Castle. Eagle-eyed viewers will enjoy how many times Edinburgh Castle appears in this chapter. Our Scottish director enjoyed the Scottishness, the Scottishness of the episode. We enjoyed putting Edinburgh Castle in every possible shot, even in places where it isn't. So, obviously, I tried to count how many times we see the castle. Neil Gaiman suggested that people might complain that we never let David Tennant do his natural Scottish accent. So, Neil thought it would be fun if David Tennant did as many Scottish accents as possible through the course of this chapter. David Tennant plays from here on in a variety of Scottish accents, from Ian Cuthbertson, Sutherland's Law, Doctor Who, to John Laurie, Dad's Army. And this concludes all of the notes for this section of Edinburgh Past 1827. And we get three shots of Edinburgh Castle. Only three? In this one. In this one. Okay. So we get Zraphel and Crowley at the Edinburgh graveyard. We get a view at the statue that has literally Gabriel's face. It's a really, really well done statue. Like, I was impressed because it really looks like him. It really does. So while Crowley and Zerafel look at the statue, we get our first glimpse into Crowley being very Scottish and Zerafel being very English in this Minnesota. When... David Tennant releases the first Scottish accent words. <laughs> I literally started screaming. Oh my god. I was watching this with Lada, so and so did she. So we were just we had to pause the episode because we had to let that out. Because David Tennant speaking with Scottish accent, it, it doesn't matter where that accent is from exactly in Scotland. It's just holy shit. I didn't notice <sighs> it the first time around, so <laughs> when I say I'm really bad when it comes to accents, I mean that I'm really bad. Like a bit later, it was like, oh, wait, I think he's, oh, yeah, okay. But I didn't clock it right away. So very quickly, we have 
the grave digger show up like oh it's awfully late to bury someone and then obviously she's not burying someone she's unburying someone and I love it when Aziraphale is so horrified by it and Kragi goes you say potato I say excellent I say excellent <laughs> ah, but obviously um, during that time like this is historically accurate body snatching was a thing in those times for exactly the reason that is given here because medicine or like medicinal research was hampered by the fact that Christianity insisted on bodies being buried whole because back then the belief that at the end of days you would be raised from your grave and you needed your entire body to be intact was still like at the forefront so um, Jewish people and Christian people were not allowed to be cremated for example I think the Jewish people to this day don't do cremation but Christians do like for them it has like loosened up a bit um, but this is where it came from and so like later on the not doctor but mister points out murderers were hanged not buried so those bodies were available for research but there were not enough horrible criminals or bad enough criminals for science to advance and so this is why the whole grave robbing thing actually really was a flourishing business Mm -hmm. so uh, yeah there were people like making a career out of it and everything uh, yep not just robbing graves but even murdering people and then bringing those people to the like the doctors and the people doing the research so this is uh, historically accurate so i was here for that amazing so also another historically accurate thing is the inability to understand that equality and equity is a different thing especially from a christian point of view because that is something that we that we have in this scene with the because she's poor she has more opportunities to do good and it's been a while since I read up on this but if I got it right this stems from a very very bad interpretation of Luke um, 620 which is the blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God and this like this is a direct quote from the King James Bible and I think that this is one of the bases where the the poor are the happier or the more blessed comes from and of course also it's capital but from a Christian point of view, blessed are the poor. Because you are not tied down and tempted by the riches of the world, amongst other things. The commentary the two of them provide in this moment is pretty sad, pretty accurate, but also very insightful. But I want to strangle Israfel throughout all of the flashbacks. I'm only with Crowley. I absolutely agree with you. And I am really glad that Crowley is there trying to get through. But I also am absolutely not surprised whatsoever that this is the balance that we're getting because Zraphel is, as we have started and seen throughout all of this show so far, he is an idealist. He believes in certain things because those things are written and he especially still sits in here. He is not aware or he doesn't realize that uh, humanity is not a set thing, that it keeps changing that it evolves and there are certain things that just are not true the way you write them in a book he also in this time he still believes in the ineffable plan and that is the difference to today's Aziraphale today's Aziraphale is not following the ineffable plan blindly anymore but 1827 Aziraphale very much follows the ineffable plan until it becomes too much as we saw last episode with Job And only ever since then has he started to once in a while take a step out 
And this is also something that we see, like him being willing to save the the hurt girl. Uh, we more or something. We morag. We we morag. Um, <laughs> but we're gonna talk about that when we get there. But so I'm I'm here for that. But I'm also even more so here for Elspeth with the shove your morals up your arse. Because she does not hesitate to tell it like it is. Because she has nothing else. I'm. I love her character. I'm very sad for her character, and I'm very happy for her character in the end. Yeah, in the end, not everybody has the luxury, and this is something that is still true today. Not everyone has the luxury of being moral in the way that some Puritans see it, because of some stupid more opportunities or shit. We just don't always have the luxury of being clean cuts and black and white. As Crowley says, this whole idea that Aziraphale is describing only works if you start everyone on equal playing field. And reality doesn't work that way. We do not start on an equal playing field. There are numerous very nice visual aids to show that we all do not start on an equal playing field. And it's absolutely ridiculous to expect people who start with very different means and surroundings and chances to have the same chances later on. Because that's not how life works. But for me, to go a bit away from the bad topics, <laughs> the real topics, into the actual show, my favorite tiny moment in this scene is that Crowley literally helps her pull the car. Yeah, because he's all in for that. He loves this. Yeah, but he is like bodily getting into this. He is literally getting his hands dirty. And I am here for it. I love this hands-on Crowley. In general, I love past Crowley even more than I did in the past. Haha. Um, this episode really endears Crowley so much more to me. Yeah, he shows his true colors truly in this episode. And unfortunately... He gets punished for it at the end. We don't know how, but... He also shows his true colors at the end of the episode, but we're going to talk about that. Also that, and and I refuse to talk about it before that because... Yes. Opinions and emotions. Car. <laughs> Let's go into the car in present. Yes, present time car ride. And I have to say it, Dom Aziraphale is back. Because, come on, Aziraphale telling the car to play classical music and not change it into Queen and the car listening and changing to the way he wants it to change, that is peak Dom Aziraphale energy. And I love that the only thing that takes him away from this path is the idea that Crowley is going to start selling books. I mean, Crowley knows where to hit him where it hurts, but... Same way, it goes both ways. So, well, so that's the thing. I feel Aziraphale is incredibly callous in this season. Callous. Callous, as in careless, as in not actively caring, as in not thinking what effect his actions might have. Okay, yeah. Both when it comes to, of course we're going to take in Jim and we're going to help him and we're going to figure this out. And in, without hesitation, changing the car in a way that he would prefer it. Even though he knows how much the car in this state means to Crowley. Yeah. And and on the other hand, he expects Crowley to respect all of his boundaries, while he himself only only accepts and respects Crowley's boundaries after being told so. So to me, and this is why I say Crowley is more in love with Aziraphale than the other way around, because there is a one-sidedness still. I feel like it's it's giving me the vibe that uh, Aziraphale is used to Crowley go like changing his way for him, and he is he is used. Using and abusing it a little bit. As we are talking through it now, I feel like, unfortunately, we're going to have to have a fallout where Azrafa is going to have to realize that he is losing 
what is the most precious to him. He is stepping on Crowley's needs and wants and boundaries at any turn without realizing and apparently caring. And I think he would care were he to realize what happens. Yes. So I'm with you. There needs to be, there needs to be a fallout because with this power imbalance, there can be no actual happiness. Yeah. And I I love them together. I absolutely adore them together. But if this happens, or rather when this happens, I'm going to be on Crow's side. Yeah. Aziraphale needs the wake-up call. Maybe we get lucky and he realizes it without them like having too big of a fallout you know what like i think that crow is gonna go very extreme once this is gonna go tits up or oh no i just had a thought okay hit me what if you know how uh, crowley is trying so hard for azrafel not to be deleted out of the book of life because he can't imagine his life without him so he's like both of us or or none of us crow is gonna get erased and only then Aziraphale is going to be like, oh, no. No, because once Crowley would get erased, Aziraphale would not know he ever existed. And so then there can be no realization. If you get erased from the Book of Life in this universe, you have never existed. So it's with the, it's like the curse that... Oh, no, I, I, I know I know what you're saying. But like, also, no. I'm like, no. what what if they're going to do some sort of a twist on it? And Oh, there will, there will be a twist. I mean, this is still Neil Gaiman, so... Um, there are, of course, Amazon notes that we need to include in this scene. The first one is a music note. Did you notice what music is playing? I tried to listen to it. It's something that I don't know. The song playing is Dance Macabre by Camille Saint-Saëns. I can't pronounce it. It's with an, two dots of on the E, like an umlaut, but I... I <laughs> so song Probably Camille Saint-Saëns. It tells the story of the dead leaving their graves to dance. Very fitting for this chapter. And second is another Paul and Pressburger reference. The Tartan Hills that we see where he drives. This is a reference to Paul and Pressburger's film I Know Where I'm Going. The Tartan Hills are featured in that film. The Big Hills are dressed in the official Good Omen Tartan and the Red Tartan featured is McKinnon Tartan, in reference to the director. We also featured Alien Donnan Castle and the Loch Ness Monster. And the Loch Ness Monster. We might be heading to Scotland. Wait, are we? <laughs> God damn it, I quit. So to wrap this scene up, I'm very much here for Crowley standing up to Aziraphale and forcing him to turn the Bentley back into how it is supposed to be. Yes, I'm here for it. We go into hell. I just I just find Beelzebub a, a bit melancholic, maybe? Melancholic? I was wondering if everyone is going through a crisis because Belzebub strikes me the same as Crowley to be going through a crisis. To be fair, it would make sense in a in a way that we all expected the Armageddon to happen and you gear up for it and you prepare and you hype up and it's a false, stra- it's a false start. So it's just like, what is the point? What's your purpose? Like, as Crowley said in episode one, what is the point? There's no point. That's that's the point, that there is no point. And once you stop looking for a point and just enjoy life as, as it is, as the nihilists are want to do, you will be much happier. So I highly recommend that approach. But that is all I have. Like, I didn't care much about the random demon that is running his mouth and everything. And Belzebub wanting praise for doing a good job, which is like, where are all my kink phrases coming from in my shows? Like, what is happening? It's like, it's like, oh, you're such a good 
demon. You're doing such a good job. It's like, okay. All right. We go into the bookstore and I was so confused the first time through what the fuck Jim is doing with dropping the book. Exploring gravity, baby. But before we go into the details, I want to give the two Amazon notes that we have because they're actually interesting. Hmm. Shocker. At least the first one. The book he's dropping, My Best Game of Chess by Alexander Alekhine, that Jim keeps dropping on the table, is featured in the film Matter of Life and Death, another Powell and Pressburger film. In July 2015, Michael Sheen told Time Out magazine that this was his favorite film. Ah! And so now I wonder if that is one of the reasons why we keep getting so many Powell and Pressburger film references, because at least Michael Sheen and probably some of the other relevant people are fans of those movies. Probably. That's amazing. And I love that because like working on something that then has all these tiny tidbits of other things that you love, I'm here for that kind of appreciation. So that makes me really, really happy. And the second thing is Jim's costume is inspired by Ronnie Barker and David Newson in Open All Hours. And I wanted to look it up, but I didn't. That is a sitcom apparently from 1976. Hmm. So I wanted to get those in, but now we go back to gravity that is being demonstrated by Gabriel letting a book fall on a table. Okay, question. Why is why is Crowley walking around with stacks of books that he's just placing to different places? Okay, so I think he is actually trying to do what he thinks is the work in the bookshop because he's trying to do a good job for Azurafil. But but then he loses patience halfway through. But every time he ends up with a stack of books, something else happens that he needs to tend to. And so he just throws it to the side. I, I, by the way, fucking loved that. Yes. Both times. Hilarious. Does not get old. I'm here for it. The timing. Please do it again. Yeah. So... We have the conversation about gravity and, of course, most importantly, your fly is part of this conversation. Yay! I straight up named it Vero's fly. (laughs) Yeah, I went into all cups. See, this is the same fly. Why is nobody concerned? That is a really good question, though. Like, now that I went back and made sure that you were really right that the fly is there since the box has been opened, why is no one concerned? Especially Crowley should be concerned. That Jim is not concerned makes sense. Aziraphale is very absent-minded, so, okay, I get it. But Crowley literally had Belzebub and all of their flies in his car. So he should be concerned with a fucking fly. So I am confused as to why is he not. Also... We learn this episode that demons need an invitation. Which is new information. Which is new information, like other vampires now. But uh, regardless of that, is Zerafel is the one who brought the box inside. So he technically, we could argue that he's the one who invited or brought... The- so we, we really don't know. I'm super confused, by the way, with the demons need an invite now. Because now I feel like I need to go back and watch season one and see if that tracks. Or does this rule not apply to Crowley? Because I don't feel that he has always been invited into everything that he entered. And also, once again, like... Into which dwellings do you need the invitation? Is it like with vampires that only in that only dwellings where someone lives and sleeps have this power, like where you have a threshold? Because a threshold does not only apply to vampires, it also applies to like all kinds of magical forces. And if you cross a threshold without an invitation, your power level basically gets reduced. So like I have a lot of questions that come up with this. The one thing that I was kind of that would make it the easiest for them if this was only true for the bookshop because it's 
an angel slayer. The same way... So it's an extension of heaven, basically. A demon can't enter heaven unless they are Would invited. Would that mean that an angel could not get uninvited into the Bentley? I don't think it works the same way the other way around. Because technically demons are damned, so, damned fallen angels who don't have the same, you know, rules to that. She, they shouldn't have the same types of powers as angels, maybe? We're gonna shelf that and see what happens, but I'm very, very curious with all of this. We talked about the outfits, I just want to point it out, because this is where we see the tight pants really, really well for the first time. I am here for it. I love Crowley's outfit, loving the pants, loving everything. Trousers. <sighs> for our UK listeners... You keep saying Armageddon, and I will keep saying pants. All right. So basically, basically, this scene ends with Operation Lovebirds being introduced. Vavoom. Uh, he uses the word again and he teaches Jim the word. So Vavoom. I'm very much here for Vavoom, I have to say. Mm. It should be called Operation Vavoom. Yes, that would be much better, but sadly, no. Before we can Vavoom, we go back into Edinburgh past again. We start this scene with the castle count at three, and we end it at three, sadly. There is no Edinburgh castle in this scene. Boo! There's more in the future, but not in this one. Hmm. Okay, so we are here to meet not a doctor, but Mr. Dalrym Dalrymple. I'm not even going to try to pronounce that. There's a reason why I always skipped around with the not a doctor, but a mister and a surgeon and la 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 la. Because, yeah, no, I can't say that. But obviously he is played by Sean Bickerstaff, who we know from Harry Potter, where he plays Oliver Wood. And apparently he also did... Wait, what? Oh, you didn't recognize my him? My brain just connected that. Oh my God. No, I did not recognize him. And I am... <laughs> Oh my god. So this is obviously just yet another British actor who is from Harry Potter and now also in Good Omens. But Sean Bickerstaff has also been in Doctor Who, animated miniseries called Shada, where he voices Chris Parson and Paul McGann voices the Doctor. So this marks the third time he's in the same franchise as David Tennant. Lovely. So we meet the doctor, not Dr. Mister. We go inside and for me, the best line is, you should consider washing your hands. It's going to be all the rage in a few years. Because this is a throwaway line, but it is incredibly accurate. This was like an accidental thing that death rate, especially during birth, went down significantly just because people started washing their hands. So fucking throwaway line, but incredibly accurate for the time. I'm loving this. They really know their things. And this is, you said that this is written by Katz Clark, who has her own history of book writing and stuff like that. So it just feels accurate because writers, like book writers especially, often do massive amounts of research when they are writing anything. She really did her homework and I appreciate it because... As you said, book writers do that. TV writers sometimes do it and sometimes not. And I'm really, really here for it. It's sadly because of the way television works and of the speed that you have to produce episodes. It's not always possible to do a deep, deep research. But with an artwork like Good Omens is and the amount of work and time that goes into that, it makes sense. So we are there and Xerophel does the main thing I can't abide because he miracles the already taken corpse basically into soup. 
which for me not only is a fucky reservoir, but also it makes no sense because the body has already been taken. The bad deed has already been done. Well, I think that he is trying to help her not to do another one by profiting off of a bad deed, <sighs> which okay. is like, I still hate it. Yeah, but it makes sense. Yeah, I'm with you. Okay. No, that makes sense. So, yep, she gets to leave and we have a short conversation with the surgeon. And this is really well done, in my opinion, because him using the tumor as an example, how necessary this kind of research is, hits really, really deep. And of course, Aziraphale with, the, oh, but did the boy know? Of course the boy didn't survive. This is fucking... How else would he get the tumor yeah well you can remove a tumor but the likelihood of the patient surviving in those days very very small and when the surgeon goes how are we to win the fight against monstro against monstrosities like that and Aziraphale's um and Aziraphale's reaction while cradling the tumor basically in his arms how how can this be the ineffable plan when there is so much pain and suffering and it's all meant to be how can this be done by my creator and so i'm surprised is the wrong word but I, d I don't have a better one, but I am surprised how hard we're going against Christian doctrine and how clear it's being made, how bad and problematic all of those are. I love that they are actually taking time to make a well thought through reasonable argument that is very difficult to argue with, if you know what I mean. You know, they really, really like, If you watch this as somebody who has been a Christian or a Catholic or whatever their entire life and they have been taught certain things and they have sometimes people have difficulty accepting that there can be different points of views, for example, and people always try to fight. And when you create fights, you create resentment. And that's the biggest problem of today's society is that everybody's being really, really loud and nobody's actually listening to what the other people have to say. But this show does such a great job in presenting certain things in a way that you they're not fights. They're not aggressive, woke, whatever statements. <laughs> they're just the truth. I'm pretty sure there's still people saying that this is woke. I mean, of course they are, but they present the facts and you are at liberty of doing what you will with them. And the facts are often very overwhelmingly... <laughs> painful? <laughs> painful. And difficult to accept for somebody who has been, you know, viewing certain things some way their whole life. So it is, I think, a joy and beauty about this show that makes it so easy to accept in a way, if you know what I mean. I don't. I, I hope I'm making any sense at all. No, you're, you're making sense, absolutely. Very good. Take us away. Back to the present and to the resurrectionist. And we have a really nice changeover scenes because the surgeon literally says, I will either be get a knighthood or will be hanged as the resurrectionist or something like that. And with that, we go back into the present time and we see Zirafel driving in in the Bentley to Edinburgh and getting out and walking into the pub. Yes, and while he does that, we see Edinburgh Castle and we also see it when he leaves. So that makes the Edinburgh Castle shot count to five. <laughs> Loved it. So what he does, the first thing, is he puts on the hat, which is like the newspa newspaper man hat. And 
I, on one hand, really love this and really hate this about Azrafel at the same time. And that's the thing that he, throughout the history, every single time he comes across something innovative and, and amazing and cool, he just keeps using it forever. And it doesn't matter that it happened 50 or 150 years ago or this was time invented. Time is irrelevant for an angel. Because he finds the things that he really likes. So obviously he's going to fucking keep it. So... He loves the idea of the newspaper men carrying their notes. Their signature thingy that like shows that they are from the press. Yeah, and then they they have everything in the hats and everything. He loves the idea because, you know, it's so grand and cool and you could hear about it in the news. And these are the people who brings you the news. So, of course, he chooses that to embody when he goes into the pub. So when he gets out of the car, I was like, I've been there. I'm pretty sure I've been in exactly that street. So that was interesting. Um, we see the pub sign, of course, like you said. Yay, on the one side we have Shrizus and on the other side we have the surgeon. Isn't it also funny that he doesn't see the surgeon until he comes out? So he is coming in and seeing the Jesus. So he's like, oh, reassured. Oh, this is so cool. It's the real resurrectionist. You know, it's Jesus himself. And then he's, as he comes out, only then he sees the surgeon. So Which, ha ha ha. Once inside, he plays very, very obnoxiously the newspaper man, which... I was a bit fed up at this moment because I was not I was still not over how much he annoyed me um in Edinburgh past so I did not have much space for his antics. He goes in <laughs> there, he has a conversation with the pub owner and he shows him the sketch. And I'm sorry, that is not the same sketch from last episode. See, I forgot to mention that, but you know how what he's sitting at his table when Muriel arrives. Hando, he is working on he's the sketch. He's finishing the sketch, but last episode, what we saw did not look like this because this looks amazing and this looks exactly like Gabriel. Because it was a rough sketch, Lena. Last episode, you were like, oh no, obviously this is Gabriel, it's amazing. And you just insulted Michael Sheen's sketching. And I was like, it looks like shit. I'm sorry. I mean, it looks better than anything I could ever do, but still. I mean, I recognize him. <laughs> I didn't. But on this sketch, obviously, I recognize him. And so does the lovely person behind the bar. And this is where it gets confusing to me. Why a Mason? Why does he think he's a Mason? Do you want to know why I think that he's meeting with a Mason? Tell me. Oh, Do no, you remember to get another statue? statue? Yeah. <laughs> because he was so impressed by the first one, he wanted either... Um, where I, ha I have written it down. Okay, now, now I'm happy. Now I'm very happy. Thank you. It is absolutely because of the Satu. So either he is commissioning another one or he is trying to find the person who did the original or he set for the original and now he wants an updated version because he obviously looks so much better now. I am with you. This is amazing. This makes me incredibly happy. Thank you. I can now strike all my conspiracy worries <laughs> because this tracks. I am here for that. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, this yeah. Perfect. Okay. Azurafil <laughs> leaves and as you said, he notices the sign of the surgeon and he takes one of the leaflets. We go into Edinburgh past. Let's dig in, as Azurafil would say. Literally, because Azurafil is now all about doing it again. And I'm still on my fuck you Azurafil train. He is so blasé about everything and it's like, wow. Also, I'm sorry. He literally says, I'll dig up all the bodies you want. And then we cut to the graveyard and he's literally just standing around looking at other graves. 
He is digging nothing. He's completely useless. And I mean, life back then was hard enough, especially when you were poor. And you really did not mean, you really did not need a meddling, well-meaning angel in the mix. And yes, both of them probably would have died sooner rather than later if Crowley and Aziraphale had not meddled in their affairs. And this way only one of them is dead and one is actually wealthy. But, you know, still, maybe don't fuck around with human lives. Like, they don't count. Yeah. It's also what we get here again. Crowley is taking every opportunity he can into pointing out the inequity, the inequity of human lives. Yeah, and the problems and holes in the ineffable plan. Yeah, making sure that Zerafel opens his fucking eyes and sees it. Well, I wouldn't say making sure, but he is trying his very fucking best. And I applaud his patience. I mean, if you love somebody, you have all the patience in the world. Well, sometimes to your own fault. Um, so then we have we Morag and Elspeth finally getting to the coffin. And they open it. And I am unsure that if we Morag gets this scared because of seeing the dead body for the first time, or is it because it's a priest? Both. It's a combination. Yeah, I think it's a combination. Yeah, it's fucking, that's a rough one. And also the facial expression, like you are expecting like someone who looks like they're sleeping and he looks mortified and like not like he went easily. How? Do, what? I, I don't want to know. Okay, well, because I would have theories, so. Oh my God. Okay, share the theories, but I'm going to pretend I'm not listening. Well, back in the day, it wasn't as uncommon to bury people who weren't that dead. <gasps> oh no. So, and we... And we didn't see his fingers, so maybe he... I mean, he was, it, if I remember correctly, it was, like, up. So maybe he tried to scratch out his way. Oh, my God. That's, that's rough. You're welcome! Yeah. So I somehow managed to say everything I have written down for the beginning of the scene in other moments, so I'm not going to reiterate everything. The next thing I actually have is that when Crowley creates the hole for the Watchmen... Did he send them straight to hell accidentally? Basically, that's literally, I wrote, like, what do you mean hall? That's no longer a hall. That is a hell pit. Uh, yeah, the hell pit is very, very accurately. So we are now in the mausoleum and dear patrons, enjoy the bonus material. I did not see anything that the Amazon notes describe about the mausoleum. I really paid attention. I did not see a single thing they mentioned. So, okay. Yeah, nice. Yeah. So what happens inside the mausoleum, right? Mm -hmm. It is very fitting to the time and it's very practical. She dies rather quickly, but she dies not that quickly that if Aziraphale were to shut up just once in his timeless existence and do something instead of talking about doing something that he would not have had the time to save her. But because he needs to talk and talk and talk, he misses the short window of opportunity. And I really have a grievance with Aziraphale in this episode because he could have saved her, but he didn't because he kept blabbing on. Yeah, because healing somebody is a very different situation than one full Lazarai. One Lazarus. Lazarai is the plural. Oh yeah, true. One full Lazarus. So I'm, I'm very upset about that, but I am very much not upset with Elspeth because her reaction makes perfect sense. It's really, for the lack of a better word, cool to watch her... Go through it. Go through grief, moment mm -hmm. of grief, then gathering herself, and then realizing what needs to be done in order for her to survive. 
And I'm surprised at the turn that after she hands over her one and only friend, that she takes the poison and that she makes up her mind to kill herself. You know what? I was as well and I did ask the same question to myself. But then I do have a theory. And she comes to the surgeon and she asks for seven or eight pounds. And he goes, well, listen, you're more than welcome to go around and, and knock on the doors and see if you can get more for her. But this is what I'm giving you. And only after that, she takes the bottle when he goes get the money. So my theory is that she had a final realization where she was like, well, I am the bottom of the barrel. People will always screw me over. I will never be able to dig out, dig myself out of it, even, even since my only and best friend is, has put her life on the line for me and for us. There is no hope for me for a better life because people will never let me be better. So basically, had she gotten the eight pounds, she would not have lost the last tiny bit of sliver of hope that she had. But because she gets screwed over yet again, which is normal in her life, she and now she does not even have a friend anymore. She doesn't have the energy to keep fighting. Yes. Good enough reason for me. Yes. Yes. I can I can live with that. So we go back into the mu- mausoleum. Oh, how poetic, isn't it? I'm I'm here for that. Like I love me some symbolism. And I also <laughs> really appreciate that she bought a wine to toast We Morak, that she has a separate glass for the poison. And that she saved enough money that she herself might be buried. Even though it is a tiny bit hypocritical of her that she wants to be buried. But also I don't blame her because she has nothing else. So she might hold on to the last tiny bit that she has. So did you see it coming that Crowley is downing the poison? Because I I sure didn't. I didn't. I, I expected them to try to talk her out of it. I expected them to spill it. I expected everything. I expected Aziraphale to miracle it away, basically. Yeah, and not Crowley getting rid of it so nobody can get to it. You know what it brings me to one of my favorite moments of the entire episode? And that is... Drunk Crowley? Yes. Crowley of his tits on (laughs) Laudanum. It's it's my favorite thing. It's literally my favorite thing because we get all of the accents. We get the singing. The dancing. I'm mostly impressed by Elspeth in this moment because she is taking all of this in fucking stride. I mean, let's face it. I'm pretty sure she is convinced that she's seen worse. At least this person is not directly attacking her. Yep. And uh, with the shrinking and the growing large, I'm sorry, the Marvel Universe has ruined this for me. All I have to say to this is how very Ant-Man of him. (laughs) And when he then goes, because killing yourself, that is so not on. When he's big. And once again, he is the one causing the, he is the one causing the action. He is the one instigating the actual change. He is the one affecting the good. And I'm pretty sure that if Aziraphale had not been harping on about the good deed he did and the good thing he did and how good he did, that maybe hell would not have clocked it. Yeah. It's possible. Like, seriously, Israfel needs to fucking shut up. I'm so upset with him this episode. <laughs> well, I really hope that the next one's going to be better because uh, the things that made me sad slash weirded out about the last episode has gotten so much better in this one. So I'm like very, very much hopeful that this trend is going to continue. Crowley gets sucked down and Zerifel notes in his diary that it's been that it's the last time he sees Crowley for a long time. Which Baby Crowley, no 
probably getting tortured in a dung pit or somewhere. Oh, God. Uh, well, it, that is the thing. I wonder if we're going to find... I don't think we will find out, but I wonder if we are ever going to find out what hell did to him to punish him. Well, I can put it on the list. We don't have questions for season two yet. Um, we have a few for Neil, but yes, put it on the list. Put it on the list unless it's one of those... One of those. Let's. It's unimaginable torture. Let's not talk about it. <laughs> Speaking of all the Harry Potter references that we've done this episode. Yeah, I mean, it's Edinburgh. Sadly, there's going to be a few of those. All right. Anything else for the last of Edinburgh past from your side? Nope. So I shall move us into Edinburgh present. And sad to say... The Edinburgh Castle shot, the Edinburgh Castle shot count remains at five. Boo! With the note in the beginning, I expected so many more, but it remains at five. I am disappointed. Rude. I am also confused as fuck by the two dudes who show up on the graveyard. Like It's a graveyard date. What do you want? Okay. Are graveyard dates a thing that I'm not aware of? Or... Well... I don't know if it's an actual thing, like, but it's clear they are clearly on a date. And just to make sure that we got it, he mentions that he uses his phone for Grinder. Yeah, but still. Which, for I those mean, who don't know, that's a gay dating app. It's a gay Tinder. Yeah. So, well, yeah, dating app is a is a bit of an yeah. understate it's, overstatement. It's, it's a gay Tinder with what Tinder used to be. Nowadays, people on Tinder look for love and relationship. Back in the days, Tinder was a hookup app for straights. So. Okay, so you, you say it's simply just uh, two hooligan-styled dudes who happen to be gay, happen to be walking on the graveyard, and Zerafel just happens to encounter them. Okay. Maybe I was expecting too much. So, okay. Speaking of those two dudes, obviously the Amazon notes tell us to note the unfortunate misspelling of no regrets, because it says no Regards. Oh, I missed that. Really? I, is it a tattoo? It's on his forehead. Oh, so it's the updated version of no regrets. It is no regards. It's no regards with two E and it's on his forehead. Because um, it's the Scottish version of chorus. And secondly, you can't really make it out without the help of the Amazon note. The t-shirt worn by the dude with no regrets, um, is printed and it says the really well-known four. And that is one of the gang names Adam and his friends called themselves over the years in Good Omens the Book. Ah, I love that. So that was a really, really nice tidbit. And also, obviously, the background of the phone changes from the Scottish flag to the Union Jack. <laughs> of course. F- fuck you, Israfel, once again. Seriously. Honestly, he is on a roll this episode. Annoying me. And he really needs to make up for it next episode. <sighs> but yeah, we get obviously the phone call where he talks to the phone as... And it works. I fully expected it to not work. But then I connected it with the way he talks to the car. And I was like, oh, I guess this is just the way he does things. Also, so dear listeners, in case you didn't know, we just covered Stardust, both the movie and the book. The movie is out, the book will be out after this season. And in the book, the Witch Queen persuades items to do what she wants. Oh. And when she was more powerful, she had an easier time doing it. And so I kind of wonder if this is the same principle that Gaiman uses. Maybe. That would make sense. And I would not have clocked it if I had not literally today finished editing Stardust, the book. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, that one is a chunky one, so I hope that you guys are going to appreciate it. <laughs> but it was just like the way of talking to things and then, then things changing for you into the way you told them to. It seems so similar. So yeah, that was that was wild for me. Ah, uh, <sighs> and they get on the phone and the way Crowley answers the phone. Before he answers it, he once again throws the books aside. It's the second time. Yeah, I know. That's, this one, this time it's even funnier because yes. it's the whole, the horrified like, oh no, someone's calling and he just looks around himself and then she just, he dumps the books to the side and it's incredibly funny. For a moment, I thought he would not answer because he wouldn't know what to say. So I was like, oh, is he, is he, is he? And then he answers. And he says something truly special he says hello we probably don't have what you're looking for and we wouldn't sell it to you if we did and i heard that and my instant image was bernard black from black books <laughs> i don't know if you've seen that show I, I am aware i have not seen it but i am aware yes. but bernard black is notoriously known or he is a bookseller who notoriously hates selling books because he just loves to read them. So he is basically like a, he's a dark Irish version of Azrafel. Mm -hmm. That is very accurate. Oh my God. What Does that mean that I'm Bernard Black? Sometimes. Ooh, ooh. But ooh. for me, mostly the way Crowley answers the phone showcases to me how seriously he takes taking care of the bookshop for Azrafel because he doesn't know who's calling. So what he is saying is what he is acting on and how he is behaving and how he is protecting the bookshop and Azrafel's books. So that Azrafel even needs to ask if he sold any books is once again like, why do you need to ask? He, he literally just said, we don't have what you're looking for. And even if we did, we wouldn't sell it to you. Why do you have to ask? Don't you know him well enough? Do you really think he would do this to you? So... It's called small talk. No, no. And because I'm already exasperated with Aziraphale this episode, I did not have space for even that small question. So I'm like, shut up, Aziraphale. Yeah. Um, we get the awning of the new age, <laughs> a.k.a. Operation Lovebirds, a.k.a. Bavoom. Bavoom. We are in London present, yes. We're getting so many great names for this, I can't even. Crowley, hands down, is my favorite thing this episode. Very closely followed by Inspector Constable Muriel. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you, absolutely. And then third place is Miss Sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Miss Sa Miss Sandwich and her girls are yes. absolutely the up there. Yeah, <laughs> if there if we had more of Miss Sandwich and her girls, we would probably had a draw between Inspector Constable Muriel and Mrs. Sandwich and her <laughs> Miss Sandwich and her girls, which both is like it's just such a great <laughs> name or anything. Oh. oh my god! Can you imagine cosplaying Miss Sandwich and her girls? <laughs> it would be fucking hilarious. Just having like 15 boobs. Yes. <laughs> and coffees. Boobs and coffees. And e oh. coffee for each boob. Yes. Oh my god. Okay. Focus. Um, We are in oh. this final scene and I am upset with Maggie confronting Nina once again while she's working. We talked about this at length at, in the last episode or the previous episode. I don't know. So I don't have to do it again, but don't. Just don't. Luckily, because of the awning and because of the rain, we get the... Uh, they get to kind of move away from the work. So it's not like 
I am being waved at by customers currently, so whatever. But the way they set up the scene and we have the music in the background and the words are being said, the right words for the situation. Like this is the first time, like I'm not still shipping the two of them together, but the vibe of that scene, it was working for me. The the thing they were going for. If the cover hadn't ripped, I'm pretty sure it would have worked in the cliche romantic movie fashion, which, but there was one thing in this scene especially the beginning of the scene that for me was especially relevant and that is the Nina saying I'm not your type because that means she had not realized in the past interactions that Maggie was hitting on her yes probably and that in turn because we now know due to this scene that that Nina definitely is an abusive relationship at least in an emotionally manipulative relationship And I believe that Nina's self-worth is non-existent anymore because of the relationship she's in. So she will not even understand that someone has an actual interest in her because she does not see herself as desirable, basically, because of the relation, because of the type of relationship she's in. Okay, I thought that we're not doing therapy during recording. Um. <laughs> Oh, right. I forgot. You're identifying with Nina. Sorry. God damn it. <gasps> All right. So unfortunately, or fortunately, depending how you look at this, this tempest does not work. And the word tempest is the thing that triggers Gabriel to come out and hello, hello, wherever you are. Holy fuck. Mm -hmm. I wrote down what he says. Please tell me again, because I have chills. Because I thought it was a Bible quote, but it's not. There will come a tempest and darkness and great storms and the dead will leave their graves and walk the earth once more and there will be great lamentations. Every day it's getting closer. So if you take away the every day is getting closer, I thought this was a Bible quote. I thought so too. This is I have it in my notes. Like, is it from, from the Bible? But I didn't research it because I, I trust did. you. I did. And the only thing I got were more or less spoilery good omens pages and newspapers so I managed to not spoil myself more but I also couldn't click on any of those so I did the only thing I could which was I took the text and I reached out to a friend of mine who studied religion and I was like yo girl this sounds like it's from the fucking bible where is it from and she was like yo girl you should know this because this is from the book of revelation not verbatim but this is describing what happens in the book of revelation oh and so I went onto wikipedia and I checked the book of revelation and I checked out universal resurrection because that is uh the part with the, the dead will leave their graves. And so from what I can tell without going into an actual devil's in the details, it seems we simply have skipped the part with the Antichrist. We ignore the fact that it didn't happen and the four horsemen of the apocalypse and we just continue with the rest. So from what I can tell, we are continuing with the end of days as described in the book of Revelation, which by the way, is not to be taken as actual, this is going to happen events. Those are, it's very, very complicated, but maybe I do a devil's in the details at one point. But basically those are like not prophecies, but um, parables. So yeah. That we will see. But, um, and every day it's getting closer, obviously. Uh, every day it's a getting closer. Um, means that the end of days is coming nearer and nearer. So it simply seems that we ignore the fact that the, that the season finale of season one has happened. <laughs> and the ineffable plan has been failed, or has been foiled, rather. And we are continuing with the end of days. And nobody got the memo that there is no Antichrist. Oops. So... That is what I took away from there. 
And so the song probably is nothing more than a reminder every day it's getting closer. Yeah. See, I told you. I told you this is it. There you go. So, but now, now I'm shucks. intrigued. I'm intrigued. I'm in it. Which is a good thing. Yes. More. And and Shucks shows up. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I'm here for Shucks. We haven't had a lot of lot of, you know, hell engagement in this episode. And Crowley runs out of the shop and the sign says very closed. Perfect. But I love this moment. I love this scene. So well done with the bumping into different people and her being different people and other people being her. It was really, really, really well done. I was so here for it. In general, I am here for Shax because while she still has like general life, everyday questions, like with the boiler. Yeah. <laughs> The way she slips it in to get an answer is really smartly done without being annoying. And also, she is actually starting to be menacing. She manages to rattle Crowley a little bit, which is impressive. So I am here for Shax. Yes, I am loving Shax. She is definitely on my love this character list. This is also the moment where we get Beltzebub referred to as they. So we're going to use they for them in the future. I had not realized that. And I don't think we knew that in season one. I don't know if we knew that in season one. I'm pretty sure we have had at least some sort of an inkling to it in uh, the previous few episodes. But I was it, it wasn't as clearly stated as this time. I don't think. But this time it's very, very explicitly they can't when referring to Belzebub and because he isn't when referring to Israfel or Gabriel. So it is made very, very clear. So got that. We'll use it in the future. Shax, we already had the conversation about the whole threshold thing. So I don't think we need to do it again. Nope. Yeah, so basically demons are vampires now? No, 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 no. It's not vampire limitations. Trust me. There is so many other <laughs> options. I, I have a lot of opinions on this, but we have to wait until we get more information. So we yes, shelved true. it. But Crowley closes the door, Shax vanishes, and Crowley walks up to Jim. <sighs> oh my yeah. god. If any harm comes to Aziraphale because of this, I will... Dot, dot. He does not have words because he cannot visualize the possibility that actual harm comes to Aziraphale. And him being only concerned about Aziraphale is basically what my point has... Like, this has been my point the entire episode. <laughs> so this is like, ta-da! <laughs> and then, of course, we are left with him walking off and saying it's always too late. What is he referring to? I don't know and I'm worried. Same, 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 same. Before maybe it's maybe it has something to do with Aziraphale needing more time than Aziraphale has than Crowley has to give. I feel more like this refers to something where he tried to fix something and it was too late. Where he tried to protect Aziraphale from something and it was too late. But so yeah, we will see. <sighs> The comic strips seen in the background on the windows of the record shop that Crowley passes while arguing with Shax was created by Louis Rolf. Michael Rolf, production designer, comments, I wanted something in the background that was colorfully loud, dynamic and to contain a message. We take great care in creating subliminal subject matters and meaning for everything on screen so it weaves into the visual fabric of the story we are telling. I asked Louis to have the comic revolve around the horrible crime of stealing halos. Ooh. And this leads me 
to assume that someone stole Gabriel's halo and this is why he lost his memory and everything. <laughs> My brain is melting and it's not just because of the time. Wow. Well, that's something to keep in mind when we watch the next one, I guess. Also, super side random note, Boryanon is about a stolen halo because I watched two seasons and it's surprisingly fun. I mean, you have to skip ahead a lot, but... Uh, it's, it's, it's a nice show and I'm happy they saved it. Let's wrap this up because it is nearly midnight. The amount of time used for the boring love story of Nina and Maggie was acceptable this time around, so I am okay with that. Shax is also doing really well with her cluelessness and doing better with being menacing. Everything else just continues to be better and better as well. Aziraphale with the Bentley was hilarious, Crowley throwing around books while still not selling any, such a sweetheart, some more ominous insights with a short Gabriel-slash-God moment, and of course Muriel being the adorable, clueless little angel that they are. I think my only complaint, as I have made clear, is especially past Aziraphale's callousness and carelessness. Without his meddling, those two probably would have still died one way or another, but at least not due to his actions. It seems that this season is leading to another apocalypse, only this time we're doing the classic The Dead Rising and Storms Ravaging the Earth bit of Judgment Day instead of the Antichrist bit. If my memory of the Book of Revelation is not too faded, we moved along and simply skipped the fact that the whole Antichrist, Antichrist bit didn't happen. We shall see if the future proves me right. I hate when that happens. <laughs> How did you put it? Don't you ever tire? Like, does it ever... <laughs> Aren't you ever tired of it? always being right and my answer was actually yes it's bloody <laughs> exhausting so let's see and also i love being surprised yeah no same okay yay yay i'm feeling less sad after this one is that still true <laughs> i mean it is still true okay. it is still true Good. even with the last bit because at least it's a little bit more heartwarming than last time it was just plain sad and it just filled me with sadness now they are revealing more and more about the dynamics of Crowley and Azrafel's relationship. And I am here for it. I want to know more. I am still absolutely not on board with Maggie and Nina ending up together. But I love Crowley's meddling. Gabriel flushing through Jim is concerning. But I assume that this is only the beginning. So we are halfway through the since we are we are halfway through the season. What? Right. And I am engaged in this story so hard. And with this, we say thank you for listening. If you want to follow us on social media, you can find us as The Apple of Truth on Twitter and Instagram. We will keep you updated if or when Twitter crashes and burns. You can also send us your comments and complaints to goodomens at taot-podcast.com. If you want to get that sweet, sweet extra content, early episode release and more, like six seasons of another show more, head to patreon.com slash T-A-O-T podcast. And if you like what you hear, please do write us a positive iTunes review. They help a ridiculous amount. And don't forget to pester all your friends about us. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Bye.